0: Today's sermon text reading comes from Ruth, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, JD. My daughter, Eleanor, for her end of the year school presentation, needed to pick a figure from history to write a paper on. And Eleanor wanted to pick a woman from the Bible. And so after looking at all the various options in the Bible, she landed on Naomi, who we just saw is the mother-in-law of Ruth. Eleanor worked very hard on her paper. She even read a, a bunch of my you know, big commentaries on the book of Ruth. She came up with this, this wonderful presentation. She dressed up like Naomi. She read it to the class, I was there present, and it's not as though I had forgotten about this story, but hearing Eleanor tell the story again about Naomi's despair, about God's provision, and ultimately the lineage of Jesus being preserved made me think this could be a good sermon series to follow up on the gospel according to John. So you can thank Eleanor for being the inspiration behind this sermon series. I'm not gonna dress up like any of the, the characters here. I'm just gonna keep wearing my sports jacket, but it does feel like Moab because it is very hot, and so you have that going for you. But we are now going to be in the book of Ruth for the next two months. Ruth is not a very long book. It is only four chapters long. You could likely read the entire book in less than a half an hour. The story of Ruth is very, it's just straightforward. You don't need to be an expert in Hebrew or Hebrew poetry. There's not a lot of you know theological nuance to it it's just a simple story about two women and how god provides but it is the simplicity of that story that makes it so beautiful this is often one of the more beautiful and well loved stories in all the bible in the book of ruth there is no clear purpose statement if you might remember from gospel according to John was very clear this is written so that you might believe in Christ there there's no line like that in Ruth there's no clear purpose or thesis it's just a simple story then it's our job to come up with what it means for us but as we are going to go through this very short simple story we will see that there are a number of relevant talking points for us today we'll see despair friendship racial reconciliation in the family of God, talk about marriage, we'll see the lineage of Jesus, and ultimately we will see our great redemption in Jesus Christ. So this is a very old, very simple story, but it certainly speaks a relevant word into our lives today. As you know, the best kind of stories always end happily ever after, but the happily ever after is only meaningful If there's some conflict or some trials at the very beginning of the story, if you went to the movies and the opening credits said, happily ever after, you're not gonna wanna stick around because you you wanna see how the the, the tension really escalates into the happily ever after. So the best stories start with despair and the despair at the beginning sort of serves the greater glory of the happily ever after at the end. And that is the general arc of the book of Ruth. There is a lot of tension, a lot of sadness, a lot of despair at the beginning, and then it's going to end on a great redemptive note. And so with all of that in mind, let us now begin our new sermon series, The Book of Ruth. You'll notice with me in verse 1 of chapter 1 that this is taking place in the days of the Judges. And so with that one simple line, the context for Ruth has been set. This is taking place during the period of the Judges. Judges was about a 400-year time span, starting roughly 1,400 years before Christ. We actually preached through... The book of judges 40 years ago here at redeemer now redeemer was a very different church then and most of you (laughs) weren't even here so this is sort of the the early years of redeemer dan and i preached through it together and what we saw as we were preaching through the judges is that it was a very dark chaotic godless time in the life of israel god would raise up a judge and most of these judges were not even all that great they were military leaders God would raise them up, there'd be a short period of somewhat religious revival in the nation, but that period would be very short-lived, and eventually the nation would fall back into corruption and despair, and it just was a giant mess of a period in the history of Israel. In the book of Judges, there is one repeated line. It reads, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right, in his own eyes. So, so that's the culture in which Ruth is taking place. Everyone is disobeying God. Everybody is doing what they think is right. Nobody is listening to God, and everybody is listening to themselves. God's a second thought. This is a very dark time, and this is the context in which this story is happening. So that's in the, the first half of verse one. The second half is that we see this is also taking place during a famine in Bethlehem. Now, to the original readers, this would have been very shocking because Bethlehem was a city that was known for having plenty of food. The city of Bethlehem is actually built on top of an aquifer, and so there's lots of water, which means lots of crops, and so there's almonds and olives, and there is lots of grain. So the, the word Bethlehem literally means house Of bread. I mean, this city is known. If you're hungry, you want to come to Bethlehem. But at this point, there is a famine. There is no more bread in this city, and so people are starting to leave. And so we meet Elimelech. See that Elimelech is from Bethlehem. He's very hungry. He hears that Moab has some food, and so he is going to take his wife Naomi. And their two sons, Malon and Chilion, and they are going to leave Bethlehem to go and sojourn in Moab, which is about 50 miles away from Bethlehem. Now, on a first glance, this is very understandable. Elimelech, he's a dad. He cares for his wife. He cares for his young boys. Under any normal circumstances, what a dad would do. You would find a way to provide for your family, even if it means moving to a new home. But there's a little bit more to the story than just looking for food. You see, the Old Testament often uses physical places and physical people to illustrate deeper spiritual principles. So remember that this story is taking place during the period of the judges, that everyone is doing what is right in his own eyes. Everybody is disobeying. And what we see here is that Elimelech is actually going to do the exact same, that he will, according to his own eyes he will do what he thinks is right even if it is not according to what god says is right if you were to turn to deuteronomy 28 you would see that one of the covenant curses that comes when god's people disobey is that god brings a famine that god's gonna send locusts and he's going to dry up the water and all the the harvest is going to shrivel up and die so while we might say that in a, a general sense famines happen because of the general curse that is laid upon the whole world, here it's, it's more than just being a general curse. This is a very specific action. God's people are doing what they think is right. They are living according to their own eyes. Therefore, God has sent this famine. And this famine is by God's design to bring God's people back to himself. And Elimelech does not see this not see what God is doing. And so Elimelech, like everyone else, is going to make a decision based on his own eyes. Instead of trusting God, Elimelech is going to leave for a pagan nation. So what Elimelech should be doing is repenting, but instead he leaves for a godless nation. You also need to know that Moab is not a neutral country. This is not, you know, just, hey, I'm just going to, you know, go across the bridge to Canada for an afternoon. I mean, Moab, these are the enemies. When Israel was leaving Egypt, they were a, an exiled nation. They had no home. They needed water. They needed land. They needed some food. And Moab refused to help Israel. So again, if you were to go back to the book of Deuteronomy, it would say in Deuteronomy twenty twenty three. 23, that according to the 10th generation of the Moabites, Israel should never seek the peace and prosperity of this people group. See, the Moabites were pagans. They're not like our God. Elimelech, who is the spiritual leader of his home, should have been leading his wife and his boys towards God, but instead Elimelech says, yeah, God, you're not really coming through you're not providing it for me. Therefore, I am going to take my matters into my own hands. I am going to check out Moab. This is an act of unfaithfulness on Elimelech's parts. Now, we do see that it was not Elimelech's intention to stay in Moabite forever. He wanted to sojourn there. This just meant this was going to be a temporary visit. He was not planning on staying there a long time. But what we do see is that Elimelech is half-hearted and he is making compromise. He's saying, God, I'm going to follow you to a point, but as soon as you do not come through for me, then I'm going to check out another God, but as soon as that other God lets me down, then I will come back to you. Before we go much farther into this story of Ruth, there's actually a really good lesson here in these first opening verses. A lesson about being half-hearted, a lesson about compromising, a lesson about not taking God at his word, because notice what happens. As soon as Elimelech does not take God at his word and he compromises, Elimelech will move his family to Moab. He just wants to be there for his short season. But as soon as he enters into this pagan culture, this is not a neutral act. The culture actually takes his boys. Say Malon and Chilion. they both marry Moabite women. These young men are marrying outside of the family of God. Again, the the, the problem here is not at all just the the ethnicity of the, the Moabites. The problem is not how they look or how they think or how they dress or any of their cultural customs. That is not the problem here. So this is not ethnic discrimination. But again, the Old Testament often uses physical places and physical people to demonstrate spiritual problems. The problem is that these women do not fear the Lord. These are pagan women. The nation of Moab represents those that do not love God. They don't know anything about the God of Israel. They don't know anything about the God of Abraham or the Ark or Moses or the Ten Commandments. They don't know any of that stuff. And actually, whatever they do know, they are adamantly against. So Elimelech and Naomi's sons have now taken non-God-fearing women for their wives. So basically what we have here is two men that are raised in the church that have gone off, forgotten God, and married 2 non-Christians. The problem here, again, this is not interracial marriage. I actually think interracial marriage is a beautiful thing. I actually think it really shows the glory of the gospel and that two different types of people to come t- together. So interracial marriage is a beautiful thing as long as it is done in the Lord. And that's not what is happening here. These young men have compromised their faith. And so what is the lesson here? Elimelech compromised with the culture. Elimelech did not take God at his word. Elimelech led his family into disobedience. And he lost his sons. So don't dabble with the outside world. Take God at his word. When God says to do something, just do it. That's a general lesson for all of us. It's not neutral when you do not take God at his word. More than just a general lesson for all of us here this, this morning, there's a very specific lesson here for those of us that are husbands and fathers. You see, your pursuit of God has a ripple effect that is going to impact your wife and your kids. For better or for worse, and in this case for the worst, but you set the tone for your family. Elimelech failed in this regard, and it was his family that bore the cost. So here you have this Bethlehem family now settling down as full-time Moabites, tragedy strikes, Elimelech dies. Naomi is now a widow. This is not like being a widow in the United States For, of course it's a sad and terrible thing to be alone, but at least you have social security or at least you have a nest egg or a 501K or a 401K or you have a, at the very worst, you can always just get a job as an older woman. But Naomi has none of that. Here. So Naomi's entire life now depends on her two sons. The problem is these two boys. We, don't, we can't figure out exactly what the names of these boys mean because they have very unusual names. But our best guess is that Mahon's name means sickly. Chilion's name means frail. I need to, yikes, <laughs> that would be... Uh, rough names. These are not the kind of names that you want when you're, you're growing up as, as a young man. You know, sickly and my name is frail. I mean, you're growing up, you want to be Black Panther. Or you want to be Thor. I mean, you want some kind of strong masculine names, fighting names. But not here, not for these boys. Their names are sickly and frail. Might as well be called punch me in the face and steal my backpack in middle school. I mean, this is a rough go for these two young guys. Again, why you would ever name your boys this, we don't know for sure. Our best guess is that they were born during a famine, so they probably just were physically sickly and frail boys. And it is these two boys that Naomi must now depend on. They are her security. And you know that Whenever a mom watches her boys get married, the first thing she wants are, when are the grandkids going to come? And so Naomi is hoping to see, even in her sadness of her husband being gone, at least she has her boys, and at least her boys are going to provide some grandkids. But the grandkids never come. Even worse, her two sons are also going to die. Sorrow upon sorrow for Naomi Naomi is a widowed woman living in a pagan land with no hope for the future and even no hope for the present moment. She left with her husband to find a better land, to test out what the world had to offer, and now she has realized that everything has been lost. One last name is the name of Naomi's husband, Elimelech, the word El in Hebrew means God, Melech means king. And so Elimelech's name means my God is king. So Naomi would now feel like, my God who I once thought was king. It feels as though he's dead. Think of the promises that were made to Abraham that God will provide for his people a home, descendants, a nation, the blessing of God. And what does Naomi now have? In these opening verses, it appears that Naomi has nothing that God promised to Abraham. She has no home. She's a sojourner in a foreign land. She has no descendants. Her husband, her two sons are dead. There is no one left to carry on the family name. There is no great nation of Israel. In fact, Israel is falling apart under the rule of the judges. And it certainly does not feel as though God is with Naomi in any significant kind of way. In fact, her husband, my God is king, is also dead. It seems as though everything that God has promised to Abraham has not worked out. And it would seem as though, because all the promises have failed, that God who once claimed to be king, that God is now also Dead. There are, of course, famous philosophers that have made this claim. Think of philosophers like Nietzsche, God is dead. But, but, but those kind of conversations are sort of academic, philosophical. Na, Naomi here is not struggling with the academy. She's just struggling with the existential crisis of belief in a very hard situation. God, God where are you? I've, I've heard all the stories about you. I've heard about the ark, and I've heard about parting the Red Sea, and i heard about the walls of Jericho coming, tumbling down, and my parents told me these kind of stories. And God, I even told my two sons, Malon and Chilean, about these stories, but none of it seems to be true. God, it seems as though you're dead. Is, you see here, it's not that Naomi is considering becoming an atheist. She's just agnostic. She's beaten down. She doesn't even know what to think about God because every option seems bad. So she left Bethlehem, but she went to Moab, and Moab was even worse. All options appear to be hopeless. Now, when you hear me say that, someone saying God is dead, that is, yes, of course, a blasphemous statement, but my guess would be that if we are being honest... There have all been, we've all had times in our lives when we have thought something similar. God, you've made these promises, but they don't seem to be coming true. In fact, my life seems to be getting worse and worse and worse. My only conclusion in the quietness of my heart is that you must not be there. You must be dead. God, where the heck are you? Such an increasing movement in our country t- today called the religious nuns. When I say religious nuns, I don't mean Catholic women dressed like penguins. I mean like N-O-N-E, like nothing. They're just the religious nothings. They, they knew a little bit about Christianity. God didn't show up for them there, so they tried some other different religions. Nothing happened there. What, what are you when you fill out your little scantron for your taxes, you know, Christian, Buddhist, Jewish? just um, I'm just nothing. I just have no... Opinion That that movement is actually growing in the Western culture. I'm just a nothing. Feels as though God has let them down, and so they turn to nothing. This is the state of Naomi here. It's also the state of the Western world. What is your religion? I'm just a nothing. So the question then is, is what do you do with this? You You can't argue with Naomi's life circumstances here. And everything that's happened here is objectively true. Her husband and her sons are dead. She is a stranger. She is hungry. She is destitute. She is very far from her home. She has very few reasons to be hopeful in life. It is objectively true that Naomi's life is terrible here. You can't argue with that. And so what do you do? What most people try and do is they just try and offer up empty religious platitudes. Oh, Naomi, everything's going to work out. Everything's going to be okay. You just need to be positive, positive. It's like going to a a non-religious funeral, just empty religious platitudes about a better place and being happy. And I just want to shout out, On what authority do you say those things? That is not helpful for somebody like Naomi right now, just to make up statements, just to tickle your ears, to get through a 30-minute service. We need more than empty religious platitudes when life is really hard. The other thing that we can do, especially us here at Redeemer that can read the whole story of Naomi in 30 minutes, we, we can just jump to chapter four and we can see the end and say, Naomi, it's gonna be all right. Just you know, s- stick with it. I'll read this in 30 minutes. I see how it's going to end. I see that you know, Ruth is gonna come home with you and I see that Boaz is gonna redeem you and God's law is gonna provide food for you and God's gonna provide a grandson for you and God's gonna provide the greater son who is the savior of the world. It's gonna be okay. We can only say that because we know the end. Naomi, this is her life. She doesn't know what tomorrow is going to look like. She doesn't know if it's going to get any better. Perhaps it might even get worse for her. She does not know the end. And so what should Naomi do? And then by implication, what should you do if you are currently in a similar situation? Two things. Repent and wait. When life gets really hard, and God's providence is a bitter pill to swallow, repent and wait. First, repent. In times of trouble, the temptation is to do what Elimelech just did—to leave God and go off and try some other gods. But when trials come. Stick with them. Repent. The the story of Naomi is going to pick up next week in verse 6, with Naomi coming back to Judah with Ruth. Again, these physical areas have deeper spiritual meaning. So she's just not moving back to see her friends. When Naomi is coming back to Judah, when she is coming back to Bethlehem, that is her way of saying, I am turning away from Moab, and I am now coming back to the Lord. That this story is actually the Old Testament equivalent of the New Testament parable on the prodigal son. Think of the prodigal son. He goes off and lives it up into the world and he spends all his money. He ends up sleeping by the pigs. And so he comes back to the father and the father of course runs out and gives him a big hug and says, I've been waiting for you. That's what's happening here in verse six. Naomi's gonna come to the end of herself she's going to be beaten down, she's going to be broken down, and now she's going to come back to God ready to be restored and redeemed. Richard Sibbs wrote in this great book, highly recommended, called The Bruised Read, there is more grace in Christ than there is sin in us. No matter how far Away from the Lord you've gone. Even if you've gone all the way into a different pagan nation, you're living with them and you're believing what they are saying, even then, it is never too late to come back to the Lord. There's still grace in Christ for you. So come back to him. Naomi left God. She left her family. She jumped into the culture. They lost their kids, but there is still a grace for her to come back. And then second... After you come back to God, you are going to need to wait. There's a lot of hard things going on in Naomi's life right now, and there is not going to be an instant redemption for all of it. God's full restoration is going to take some time. Psalm 27, 14, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen the heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. When when, when things get hard, we are not very patient. We live in a world that we get whatever we want in an instant. So you want to download a movie? Just click a button watch a movie. You want dinner on your doorstep? Click a button. 30 minutes later, DoorDash, it's on your doorstep. It's very fast. That is not how God's redemption often works. Of course you can be forgiven and welcomed back in an instant, but the full redemption of our stories, it's about waiting. It's about trusting. It's about sticking with God, even when his providence is a bitter pill to swallow. You see, we, we know that the end of Naomi's story, so it's easy for us to say, Naomi, be patient, it's all gonna work out, stick with him. But when we're in the middle of our own stories, we 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 don't know what's next. We don't know what God is going to do next. We do not know what blessings are going to come our way. We do not know what providences are going to be very difficult for us to handle. But now Naomi, who's part of the great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews chapter 12, Naomi knows how our stories are going to end. And so the same way that we can speak to Naomi in this story and say, by chapter four, Naomi, it's gonna be okay. Naomi can now speak to us. And say, even though you do not know what God is going to do in the future, and I do know, you do not know what blessings or trials or providences are going to come your way, Naomi can say to us, stick with God. He's at work. He's doing something far bigger and better and more meaningful than you ever dared to comprehend. Stick with him. What I was actually very tempted to do in this sermon is just right now jump to Ruth chapter 4 and just show you how glorious the redemption is for Naomi, just to, you know, start Ruth on a high note. And then I realized, well, if I do that now, then I have nothing else to say the next uh, two months. And so we're not going to do that. We're just going to let the story unfold week by week. We are going to wait to see how slow God's redemption works. But while it is slow, it is certainly true. We are going to wait. We are not going to rush to the end. We're going to wait to see what God does in Naomi's life. And Then the more, more I thought about that, even though I wanted to end this you know, first sermon on this grand, high, soaring note, I actually think that this might be the perfect place to end this sermon. is a, a little bit of a cliffhanger. Now, it's, it's not a cliffhanger because I need you to come back next week so we have higher viewership or anything like that. That, that. That's not what I mean by cliffhanger. But isn't most of the Christian life just waiting to see what God does next? That's certainly the state of Naomi here. Just, God, I'm beaten up in verse six. I'm about to come back and now I'm going to wait on you. That is most of the Christian life repenting, and waiting, waiting to see what God is going to do. It's where Naomi is at this moment, ready to return to God, and then she is going to need to wait. And so, we are going to wait on the Lord with her. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book, the book of Ruth. We are thankful for Just what a a meaningful, beautiful, blessed book it is that has spoken to millions, billions of people throughout the history of the church. Oh, Father, for those here whose lives feel something like what Naomi is feeling right here at the beginning of Ruth, oh, Lord, we do pray for the, the kind of grace that would allow them to stick with you, to keep trusting in you, to keep hoping in you, even though it feels as though everything around them is falling apart. Father, we also pray for the kind of grace that would allow us to keep waiting. We confess that we are very impatient, that we want to move on to what is new and better right away. You know, the best things are often worth waiting for. And so, Father, we wait on you. And we ask that you'd be with us in the waiting. In Jesus' name. Amen.